for <clears throat> some while now, uh, we've been discussing topics that all fall under the first part of the Eightfold Path, right understanding. We're kind of bringing that phase of things to a close with uh, uh, tonight's discussion and then next weekend's uh, teaching retreat. Uh, and really, what it, the movie night tomorrow night fits into this very well. I highly encourage you to come for that because uh, the, the, the quantum activist is speaking about a lot of the things that we've been talking about. I think you'll find uh, it resonates a lot with, with what we've talked about over the last few months. <clears throat> so where we are in that process, we've, we've talked about the Four Noble Truths. We've talked about the, uh, uh, the individual self in terms of the five aggregates. We talked quite a bit about the nature of mind and consciousness. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, the three characteristics, of which I like to say there are four. Uh, impermanence, emptiness, no self, and suffering. And now, uh, last week we began talking about karma. And uh, I think where I left things was uh, that the Buddha has redefined the idea of karma that was common in the world at the time of his birth. And just to remind you of that, the, the belief, a, a very widespread, widespread belief in karma that comes out of just recognizing that everything that we do has consequences, is the uh, karma as a law of moral causality. And there came to be this notion that the consequences uh, of every action has consequences, but the consequences of an action that came back to the person who was the doer of the action should uh, should fit the nature of the action that they perform. This was really this version of karma is what uh, properly should be described as karmic retribution. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And this is a very comforting notion. Of course, the problem is it doesn't meet with our experience. We see all <laughs> kinds of people doing doing bad things, and it seems like that uh, they they get that there's a lot of good things happening to them. Especially if you define good things in terms of uh, wealth, sex, fame, all this kind of other stuff. And at the same time, there's people who do good things and bad things happen to them. There was another belief that was also around developing over the same period of time for a long, long time in reincarnation. People have always been concerned about what happens to us when we die. And one very old notion is that well, when we die, that we get reincarnated, that we come back again in a new body and we started all over again. And of course, by putting these two together, 
you had the you had the theory of karmic re retribution, which could now make sense because uh, the the good and evil acts that you did and the good and evil consequences of the acts didn't have to happen in the same lifetime, and so that that made it easier. And, and this this idea it's an attractive idea. So here, if if you can bring yourself to believe in it. We live in a universe that is just and fair, and it does make sense, even if it isn't obvious right away. And it also, if you understand this law of karma, well, then you know what to do. If you want good things to happen to you in the future, you do good things now. And if you're foolish enough to do bad things, well, you deserve what you get. So this was this was a very widespread, very common view uh, at the time of the Buddha. It had been for a long time. And what the Buddha did very commonly, <clears throat> see, he he wasn't the kind of person that went out and would tell somebody, you know, your your beliefs are all wrong. You've got it wrong. Instead, he would meet them where they were and try to guide them to a, a, a deeper, a higher, a clearer understanding. And of course his purpose, he had no intention of teaching uh, any kind of philosophy or creating religion. What he was interested in doing was helping people to uh, understand the nature of their suffering and the suffering that's in the world and bring them to a place where they could be liberated from that suffering. And so he would take the notions, the various ideas that were common at the time. And he would tweak them a little bit so that that they could be they could be used to help people understand what he was teaching and to help people practice the things that he was teaching in a way that would would help them to achieve the result, which was liberation from suffering. And so that's exactly what he did with this idea of karma. The Buddha was very aware of the central importance of causality in things. And devoted a lot of his uh, time and attention to understanding the nature of suffering and the causes of suffering so that changes could be made and we could bring about end to suffering. And one of the things that he realized is that suffering comes from mistaken notions of how things work. That we have the mistaken idea that happiness comes from the things that we get and unhappiness comes from the things that happen to us. That 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 notion is only going to perpetuate our suffering because it's not, it's not how things really are. Your happiness and your, and your suffering aren't the result of what happens to you. And actually we see this in the world. We see people who are very fortunate but who are not very happy. And we see people in very unfortunate situations who actually aren't very happy. So, you know, we... We all can see the same thing that the Buddha understood much more clearly than most of us do. 
which is that the two sources of happiness and unhappiness come from inside us, not from outside us and not what happens to us. And so, even if this law of karma did work the way people imagined that it did, even if there was some, some amazing process that would make sure that you got your just due sooner or later, you know, you did a bad thing sooner or later, uh, an appropriate bad thing would happen to you in return. And of course, it is rather hard to figure out just how on earth that gets orchestrated. <laughs> but even if you assume that that did happen, what was clear to him, it was feeding on the same wrong idea, that what makes you happy is what happens to you, and that what makes you suffer is what happens to you. And even if that were, even if the, that law of karmic retribution were a fact, and even if you dedicated yourself to doing good things so good things would happen to you and avoiding doing bad things so that bad things wouldn't happen to you, you were going to continue to suffer because your suffering wasn't dependent upon the bad things that happened to you. And you wouldn't find the happiness you're seeking because happiness doesn't come from the good things that happen to you or the nice things that you get. So he tweaked this notion. He said, he pointed out, which is really quite obvious, is that all of our actions are preceded by intentions. And he said, karma isn't action. He redefined karma. He said, when I say karma, I mean intention. It's the intention. The whole idea of karma is some kind of appropriate moral consequence that reflects back on you. So the word karma literally means action. So to say that karma is not action, karma is intention, is linguistically it's kind of a nonsensical thing. But in those days, when somebody said karma, they didn't really mean action. They meant specifically the moral consequences of your action. So when he redefined karma this, is, this way, he was saying the moral consequences that reflect upon you and reflect upon you in the form of future happiness or unhappiness are the result of your intentions. And so he's making a really important distinction there. He's saying what you did in the world produces consequences because every action has consequences. But that's not the moral consequence. The moral consequences are the result of the intention behind the action. Which actually, if you think about it, that, that's really the way it should be. Because after all, you can do a good thing with a bad motivation. And you can do a bad thing with good intentions by being mistaken, clumsy, uh, misled, whatever. Right? So it really would make more sense to link the moral consequences to the intention rather than the action itself. Not to mention, it makes, it, well, it makes the world a lot easier to understand because actions have their own consequences. Causality works. So how could we have some mysterious force that enters in, in and changes the way the material world works in order to have appropriate moral consequences come upon a person? We don't need to do that anymore. Because the moral consequences, he moved everything from the material plane 
really to, he internalizes his psychological claim, which is exactly what he'd already done with the notion of the origins of uh, suffering and happiness. He made that into an internal rather than an externally dependent thing. So by making karma refer to intention rather than action, it was internalized, and then so are the consequences. The way this works is that you have to keep in mind the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is craving. The cause of craving is ignorance and delusion. Thinking things are different from the way they are and not, not knowing the truth. Not understanding the three characteristics that we talked about and so forth. So, the cause of suffering comes from within, and what it's coming from, what its roots are, 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 are ignorance, misunderstanding of reality, and the craving that is given rise to by the belief, by the mistaken belief that your happiness and your unhappiness come from outside, when they're actually coming from your own ignorance and, and from the fact of craving itself. We've already talked about that, so Hopefully you can recall that, I don't need to review it, but as it turns out, suffering and craving really are the same thing. When you crave, you suffer. And anytime you suffer, if you look within, you'll find the craving that's creating the suffering. So, then when the intention behind an action comes from your deluded understanding of the way things are, and when it comes from craving, then that intention reinforces both of those things. When you act out of desire or aversion in a particular situation, you're more likely to act out of desire or aversion in similar situations in the future. Does that make sense to you? We reinforce that. Every Every single time that an intention rooted in desire or aversion arises and you uh, become conscious of it and you act on it, you have made yourself more prone to desire and aversion in the future. And you've made yourself more prone to suffering when you don't get what you want or when you get what you don't want in the future as well. Likewise, Every time you formulate a path of action based on a belief in the way things are, it's reinforcing that belief. It's strengthening it. So what he was saying is that the intentions behind your actions, they reflect upon you immediately. Because in the very next moment of your existence, and in the weeks and days and years that follow, that you are more prone to the same erroneous thinking and you are more subject to the compulsive drives of desire and aversion in the future. You're reinforcing them. So whenever you act um, out of unwholesome intentions, you will inevitably experience the unwholesome consequences in the future because no matter what happens to you, you're going to be more prone to suffering and less prone to happiness as a result of that. Does that make sense to you? Although it's at this point that it starts to get a little bit subtle. Makes sense. It's easy to understand. 
but it gets a little more subtle. And the question that came up at the end of the last discussion was, can, what is intention? Yeah. If intention is so important, what exactly is intention? And how does it work? And I think that's a very appropriate thing for us to talk about at this point. Uh, probably nothing I've said so far uh, is, is difficult to grasp, except that could our intentions really exert, could they really be as important as this makes them sound? That's the subtle part. That's the part that, that uh, we need to address. So let's look at what an intention is. And I, there's different ways of defining intention, but I'll define it this way. It is an impulse that arises in the mind that is directed towards a particular activity which in turn is directed towards a particular goal. And both the goal and the means to its achievement are inherent in the intention. How's that for a definition? An example. You experience an itch on your cheek. And there arises an impulse to scratch the itch. That's an intention. Right? Um, the scratching is the means. The relief of the itching is, is the goal. And both of those are inherent in the impulse when it arises. Itch, scratch. There is, you believe that that, you believe that that action is going to achieve the desired goal. And 999 times out of a thousand, it does. Of course, probably almost everyone has experienced some kind of skin condition at one time or another, where scratching just makes the itching worse, right? But that the intention behind it is rooted in the belief that the scratching is going to make it better. So the means and the goal are connected. I mean, what is really, what is the ultimate goal of scratching an itch? It's the itch is unpleasant, and it's to make the unpleasantness go away. If you really look at the intention deeply, what is the goal of the intention? It's not really even to get rid of the itch. It's to get rid of the unpleasantness. As a matter of fact, we can analyze so many of the intentions that arise of every kind and find that it is either to eliminate an unpleasantness or to create a pleasantness. Um, and we would describe that as desire and aversion. Right? <laughs> okay. So an, an intention, that, that's an example of an intention. An impulse towards a particular activity that is directed towards a particular end goal. <clears throat> Where does an intention come from?
Where where does the intention to scratch an itch come from? Your senses. What? Your senses. Well, it origin it it is set in motion through your senses. But what what fills in all the links along the way? What? Defining the goal and figuring and figuring out the means to achieving the goal and so forth. Is our experience? What's that? I said the experience. Past experience. Past, yeah. Past experience. In the moment it happens, though, do you find yourself reflecting <laughs> on past experiences and analyzing them and planning out a procedure? No. It springs into consciousness. Comes from the unconscious. There you go. It comes from your unconscious mind and springs into consciousness fully formed. Now it, it's interesting. The great Buddhist masters of the past, in their meditations, analyze these processes and describe them. And in the process uh, of their meditation, they observe the arising of intentions on finer and finer levels and actually observe that every single moment of consciousness is accompanied by an intention. Um, it's a very interesting topic to delve into, but they describe and the course of an individual person's existence is a series of moments of consciousness arising. Huge number of moments of consciousness rising and passing away very rapidly. But in their meditations, they examined these and they found that each moment of consciousness had an object in terms of its content, something that was the, the object of consciousness. But absolutely every moment of consciousness without exception is also accompanied by an intention. There's a, there are a few things that every moment of consciousness has, and an object and an intention are two of them. And the intentions of, in, of these individual moments of consciousness in themselves are, are very small things and very simple things. Very often the intention is just that, well, if something arises in awareness, you know, you see a bright color moving out of the corner of your eye, in your peripheral vision, something arises in awareness, there is, a, it accompanied by the intention that your attention will go to it. And if, when that happened, you were reading a book, then that intention will manifest. In other words, attention will move to the brightly colored thing that was moving in your visual field. Right? On the other hand, if somebody was pointing a gun at your head, chances are you wouldn't, your attention would not move to the brightly colored thing moving in the corner of your visual field. Because it would be confronted by an opposing intention. So here's the idea is that arising from your unconscious mind are these moments of consciousness with objects and each one has an intention. And 
some of these intentions become conscious. Some of them don't. Um, the ones that become conscious are the ones that they are strong enough to begin with and or they are reinforced by enough other moments of consciousness that uh, that they have a notable presence. Uh, if, if uh, like the somebody's pointing a gun at your head and there's a nice colored light in the in the background. If there's a if there are a lot of much stronger opposing intentions, then you won't even become conscious of that intention of the intention for that, that arrived with that your that your attention that the focus of your of your eyes is going to move to something else. So intention is something very pervasive. It's always there. It's always a part of your conscious experience at a very subtle microscopic degree, at an atomic degree. So really the kinds of intentions we become conscious of are the ones that are they're kind of composites of, of a whole lot of little intentions. Now, let me just backtrack a little bit and let's be clear of something. When you scratched, that, the scratching was the result of the intention if it took place. But you didn't create the intention and you certainly didn't lift your arm and scratch your face. If you just examine your actions, something simple like raising your arm, you intend to raise your arm and your arm raises. You have, you have really no idea how that whole thing works. <laughs> But fortunately, when you form a conscious intention, and if it's not opposed by something else, then your body carries out the action that's dictated by the intention. Okay? So really, when we talk about intentions, we're talking about everything that the mind is involved with. The body is the interface between the mind and the actions in the world. And that's kind of outside of the realm that we're talking about. We're just talking about intentions that make things happen. And the intentions, as I was saying there, the intentions you become conscious of are really, think of it this way. You have all these different parts of your unconscious mind presenting different things to consciousness. Consciousness is like the place where all the meeting takes place. A conscious intention is one that's got enough support by it that it makes it onto the agenda to be considered. To be considered. And then you become conscious of it. It becomes a conscious intention. If, of all these different parts of your mind, there is a sufficient consensus, then the body is allowed to act out of that intention. Um, and a, a large percentage of our intentions don't make it onto the agenda, right? That's right. I mean, we go, we, we wander around acting out of intentions that are unconscious. Let's talk about unconscious intentions that do get acted on. Here's an interesting thing about this. Every intention originates in the unconscious. So they're all unconscious to begin with. And the only way that an unconscious intention 
can be acted upon is if it gets if it makes it on the agenda and gets approved in consciousness. That's the only way. Now, any particular intention intention that has made it onto the agenda repeatedly and been approved of and been acted upon, it, it gets acted upon more easily until eventually you reach the point where the response is completely automatic. And it might not even have to become conscious. And of course, yes, we go through our lives doing all kinds of things that are the result of unconscious intentions. But it's all because somewhere in our history, those particular intentions from those particular parts of our mind have made it into consciousness and have, you know, in, intention leads to action, repeated intentions lead to repeated actions, repeated intentions and actions lead to automatic actions. That's the way the sequence goes. So we've accumulated a whole lot of automatic actions. In the language of karma, that's called habitual karma. When the intentions that we act upon without even consciously reflecting on them, that's our habitual karma. Which is kind of how the Buddha's version of karma works. The more often that you act on intentions of a particular kind, the more automatic they become. Yes? Is it the same like positive enforcement, like positive conditioning then? Well, there is an element there is an element of that in there. Every time you have an intention and you act on it and you feel good about the results of it, just now, first of all, just because you acted upon it has already reinforced it. But then if you feel good, you reflect about it, oh boy, I did, I did really good there. That's going to reinforce it even more strongly. That's the kind of positive reinforcement. And negative reinforcement, if you act on an intention and, ooh, that was a big mistake, then that, that's going to be negative reinforcement. The next time that intention arises, it's going to be less likely to to achieve the consensus that's necessary to become an action. What about a neutral reaction? A neutral reaction? Well, most of the time a neutral reaction is going to... Uh, it, it's, it's not going to diminish the reinforcement that's already occurred simply because you went ahead in consensus to do that. Like driving a car. Like driving a car. All of those things become uh, become very automatic because um, basically the results turned out the way they were supposed to. So you don't necessarily need to, to reinforce them by feeling really good that that stopping at the red light was a good idea. <laughs> but if you recall when you first learned when you first learned to drive though, there actually was a whole lot of positive reinforcement, evaluation, and that kind of feedback, as there is in all of the things we do, in our social action, interactions, and all kinds of things like that. One of the problems with this kind of habituation that we are so prone to is you can learn to react to a certain kind of thing in a certain kind of way in a set of circumstances 
where it produces a positive result. Over time, though, you can find yourself in a different situation where it doesn't. But if it's become sufficiently strongly established, you might continue to automatically react in the same way. And I think you probably all have, you know that you have a lot of those tendencies within you. And you don't even know, you can't even recall the circumstances and the experiences that led to this particular way of reacting to things to become so strongly established. But it has become so strongly established that the only way that you can change your tendency to always react in that way is to bring a lot of really powerful mindfulness to the circumstances that trigger that response. Bring mindfulness to observing the response and its consequences and so on and so forth down the line. If you do that, then you're providing the new feedback that can change that pattern of behavior. Um, even more powerful is if you've established in your mind the resolve that, that I shall not react that way in the future, so that when, when it begins to happen, there's a, an opposing intention present. Or we do this, when you do something out of, uh, out of this kind of habitual, let's call it habitual karma. You do something out of habitual karma, but you see what you've done and you immediately regret it. Regretting it, that's a new kind of intention. And it's a kind of intention that weakens the power of that habitual karma to uh, manifest the next time. And so sincere regret and remorse and resolve, uh, these, these are powerful means for loosening the grip of your past karma. Recording this? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was his intention? To? <laughs> That's just my intention to. <laughs> Let me say something else about, you know, I've spoken of intentions in terms of physical actions, which include things that you say. But sometimes the actions that uh, an intention produces are movements of the mind. As a matter of fact, they, they very frequently are. So, when your mind generates a particular emotional reaction to an event, that's exactly the same thing. It follows that there's really there's no essential difference between that and scratching an itch, except that by itself, the emotional reaction doesn't have an external physical, material manifestation. It's all internal. But everything else about it is exactly the same thing. The, the emotion that is generated is an action, and it has a goal. You know, when you get angry, or when you're afraid, or whatever, it has a goal. And that goal is somehow or another... Uh, understood in terms of what's going to be good for you, what's going to be beneficial for you, what's going to reduce harm, so on and so forth. So somebody who is uh, a person who's very prone to becoming angry, they have the habitual karma of generating anger. You know those irritable people you know that every little thing gets... 
That's a really strong habitual karma. And even though it's obvious to you that they're just making themselves miserable, the source of that, in their own mind, believes that it's that this anger that's inducing, that this irritability that's inducing, is, is going to achieve some desirable goal. And the reason that they believe that is there's probably a time in the past when it did achieve a desirable goal. And it got reinforced so much that now it just kicks in automatically and um, they would tell you, well, I have no control over it. And you have to go to an anger management class or something. <laughs> so movements we've got to include movements of the mind together with speech and action as the uh, as the activities that uh, intentions produce. Yes? Did the Buddha talk at all about, or, or does Buddhist psychology talk at all about the age at which intentionality develops, you know, the, the, the age of reason it, uh, there's an age of reason um, in some religions, and I, the, the question occurred to me well. No, I, I don't think I've ever encountered anywhere the, the, in uh, Buddhist teachings where they where they address that. I think the Buddha himself was mostly concerned with the adult individuals that he encountered and making them understand how they had shaped themselves to be the person that they were and how they could shape themselves to be a different kind of person if they were willing to. But there's another religion called child psychology that does the <laughs> developmental psychology uh, that it has doctrines that deal with those sorts of things. <laughs> Which is a wonderful thing. It's an important thing. Stages of development, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, stages of psychological development. And I think the thing that probably obvious to everyone is there's so many aspects of our personality that were formed in our childhood and in our adolescence where we had uh, a pretty poor understanding of how the world works although at that time we thought we had a perfect understanding, especially when you were 14 years old. <laughs> but, you know, looking back, we can see we really had a, a, a really poor notion of the nature of the world and how it worked. And the circumstances we were in, of course, were, you know, in, those, in childhood and in adolescence, we're, uh, we're subject to a totally different kind of expectations and we're in different kinds of, uh, of situations with different peer groups. Yet so much of our personality is formed uh, in that part of our life. And then it gets carried over into the rest of our life with some minor modifications, but still far too, far too much of how we behave as, as adults, middle-aged, elderly adults, is still rooted in the things that worked when we were 14, 9, 7, so on and so forth. And so that, that's a lot of the kind of stuff that we need, that, that we would like to undo and that we can see the value of undoing. What the Buddha was after was something 
really more basic than that. We don't need to learn to act out of desire and aversion. We come into this world with that programming built in. And although it's very strongly reinforced as we grow up, we don't need to be taught to think of ourselves as separate entities whose happiness and unhappiness depends on what we're able to get from not-self and what we're able to avoid from not-self. We come into this world believing that we, with this strong internal predisposition, which will become reinforced through experience and through everything that we learn from everyone around us, that I am a separate self. And when these things happen to me, I suffer. And when these things, when I get these things, or these things happen to me, I'm happy. And so this is the, this is the nature of the ignorance, the belief that I am the separate self in a world of other, made up of a whole bunch of other separate selves. And I have to struggle with that other to get what I need and to avoid what's going to hurt me. And we come into this world with a part an unconscious part of ourselves that's already set up, triggered that, oh, that feels good, I want more of it. Oh, that tastes good, I want more of it. And oh, that feels bad, I've got to make that go away, I've got to destroy it, crush it, run away from it, whatever. But anyway, I've got to separate myself from it, right? Okay, so this is what the Buddha is getting at, that when you can get rid of the ignorance and the craving that have been driving your behavior all of your life. At the same time, well, when you get rid of the ignorance, what you have in place of it is wisdom. When you get rid of the craving, what you have in place of it is complete liberation from suffering, a complete end of suffering. So the end of suffering comes together with wisdom. But what they're all about is freeing ourselves from the bondage of craving and Destroying ignorance through understanding, through wisdom. Destroying the delusion. And so, to come back to karma, every, every moment of consciousness involves an intention. To the degree that the goal and the means to that goal that are inherent within that intention are rooted in a, thought, a mistaken understanding of the way things are and the degree to which the motivation is coming from craving, from desire and aversion. Each moment of attention, intention of that kind reinforces those beliefs and reinforces that bondage to craving. And the converse is true as well. Each, each moment accompanied by an intention that is rooted in non-ignorance, some degree of understanding of truth. Each moment accompanied by an intention that is motivated by some variety of non-greed and non-aversion is loosening the bonds to craving and is, is so, so this is how we get out of ignorance. This is part of the way the other big part of the way is through insight. But karma is a really important part of the way that we move ourselves 
away from delusion and craving and towards nirvana and wisdom. Nirvana, one of the definitions of nirvana is the end of craving and the end of suffering. So you can think of it like this. At, at, at this end is, is as total an ignorance and as profound a suffering as you can imagine. At this end is the wisdom of a, an awakened being and complete freedom from suffering. And we're kind of sliding back and forth along here. In every, in every moment, the intention that arises in that moment can either move you in this direction or this direction. And you're kind of going back and forth. Until you, until you start to learn about the Dharma, then where you are on this has been kind of a haphazard accident. Because you didn't know what was driving the show. But once you know, you can start moving yourself in this direction. Intentions that are, uh, that their goal is to increase the amount of joy and happiness in the world or to decrease the amount of suffering in the world. That's, that's non-greed and non-aversion. I mean, it could come. I, I, I suppose those could be distorted into <clears throat> greed and aversion. But generosity, love and kindness, compassion, patience, any intention that you ever have that arises from these things, it's moving you in the right direction. And even when you have performed a, an, an action that was based on an intention that was rooted in craving and ignorance, if you can recognize that you've done that, you can make a change even after the fact. I'll give you an example. Okay. Just to try to illustrate this whole process. You see a spider. You don't like spiders. You're afraid of spiders. So, you see a spider and fear arises, right? And aversion arises. That's the result of your past karma. Things have happened to you in the past and you have reacted to those things and you have generated intentions, all of which have made you into the person that sees the spider and reacts with fear and aversion. Somebody else who hasn't done that, who has a different karma, they might not even notice the spider. Even the fact of you seeing the spider is, is the fruit of your past karma. And most certainly, the fear and the aversion you feel is the fruit of your past karma. Now, in the present, there arises the intention, I'm going to squish that spider. The goal is, well, fear doesn't feel good. I don't want to be afraid. I want to eliminate my fear. Aversion. I don't like spiders. And uh, therefore, I want to squish the spider so that I don't have to experience this aversion. I can go back to being happy. Now, if nothing opposes that intention... If nothing opposes that intention, then um, 
in the future, you're going to be even more aware than you already are of the presence of spiders. You're going to have even more fear and aversion of spiders than you did this time because you're reinforcing it. And you're going to be even more likely than you were this time to decide that I want to squish it. So you've made some new karma by the intention to squish the spider, which is an action directed towards an end, which is to relieve the unpleasantness of your fear and your aversion. So you've acted out of craving and ignorance, and you've reinforced it, and you've set yourself up for the future. Now, in the next moment, if nothing else happens, your foot comes down and squish, spider's gone. Although, just at that moment, as your foot was coming down, spider took off and ran away. That doesn't change your karma, just because the spider got away. Or your friend Joe says, oh wait, let me take it here, scoops it up, takes it outside. That doesn't change your karma. It doesn't matter whether you squished it or not. It doesn't matter if it got away. It doesn't matter if Joe took it away. You've made that karma. It's a little tricky if it's a brown recluse. Yeah. <laughs> but Joe is very skilled at this. He's done it before. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, The next thing that happens is very interesting, too. If you squish the spider, you might feel really good about it. You feel really, great. Now you've made another new karma. This is the positive reinforcement. You've, you've doubled up, right? You've doubled up on it. Now, all these same tendencies in the future uh, are going to be reinforced. If the spider got away and this makes you really angry, oh, I wish I'd gotten that spider. Same thing. You've, you've doubled up. You've reinforced the karma. If Joe took it outside and you still, I still, I, I wish he killed it. I hate those things. You still, you know, it's the well, same the thing. The opposite is true. And, the, and you kill the spider and you're sorry. You say that is what I was getting to next. <laughs> that was the next one that I was getting to. Or else it gets it, away and you're thinking, great, 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 go, go. Yeah, if, let's, let's say that you had decided some time ago to study the Dharma and you were a little wiser than we've described you so far. And so instead, if you squish the spider, you say, ah, you know, I really didn't need to do that. I know. I read somewhere that there's 30,000 spiders in the average American home. You know, <laughs> what have I accomplished? Nothing. Oh. Well, maybe it was 3,000. Yeah. You know, and you have this remorse and this regret, and you say, oh, you know, I, I wish I hadn't done that, you know. Next time, next time I hope I catch myself before I do it. You've made a completely different kind of karma. It's a counteractive karma. And in the future, you're going to be less likely to react in the same ways and to act in the same ways and so on and so forth. So, or if the karma, and the same thing applies, if the spider did get away and you say, oh, Actually, I would have felt really bad if I'd squished that spider. I'm glad he got away. That's a good karma. Yes. Here's some really strange karma, right? Yeah. I don't care what kind of spider. I got stung by a scorpion. 
<laughs> yeah. about an inch away from a very worrisome mole wart thing. Okay. And from a which? About an inch away from a very worrisome mole wart oh, thing. Oh, a mole, yeah. Yeah, not a mole. More like a wart. I didn't want to say wart because warts were uglier than moles. <laughs> but, okay, I got stung there. Got a huge well like you get from being stung by a scorpion, right? About 10 days later, that worrisome wart fell off. Yeah. Okay? But I had already smacked that scorpion. Yeah. That's a good example of how physical causality in the world has its own consequences that have absolutely nothing to do with the moral consequences of your intention. Yeah. And that, that, is, that is a really important thing to get, to get clear on. That's why good things can happen to people that do bad things. And of course, from Scorpion's point of view, you did a bad thing, but a good thing happened to you. And not only that, it probably happened because of the scorpion's own venom. This is not fair. <laughs> it did change my view on scorpion. Now that's good. Yeah, that shift in view on, on, on scorpions. That is. I'll think twice about swapping one of those kinds. Yeah. I have a question about um, the stepping on the spider and then having the moment of. Uh, wishing you hadn't done it or, mm -hmm. or intending that you didn't think it was a good idea. If that's, if you've created that first pathway, stepped in the spider, been uh, out of aversion, are you not creating the second pathway that's reinforceable when you say, oh, but I, I, I forgive myself and I shouldn't have done that and the spider, I shouldn't have done that. And you're, you're suggesting that um, that that you're um, recreating that karma, or, or re uh, that, you, that, that that's a shift. I think is the word you used. But mm -hmm. are, what's to keep you from just reinforcing that double-sided pattern, opposed to uh, a I'll shift? Just, uh, what's the difference? You you keep doing the same thing, and you keep feeling bad after it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just illness. <laughs> Okay, well, um, if we analyze this, this carefully, what's important about, what, about a conscious intention, you get all kinds of intentions that are arising from different parts of your mind. But one that becomes conscious and one that becomes, let's, let's say, validated in consciousness, you know, in other words, there's enough agreement from all the different parts of your mind that are conscious of what's happening in the present moment that, yes, this is a, this is, we, we should act on this attention, intention. This intention should go ahead. That's what gives it its power. Because it's feeding back on all those different parts of, of the mind. Okay? So, um, there can arise. You know, there, there can arise an intention from some part of your mind that says, but it's all right to do, hey, hey look at that, it's, it's all right to do this bad thing as long as we feel bad, or feel bad about it afterwards, that kind of cancels it out. And you see, now that that is a completely new, I mean, it's connected, but it's a completely new bad karma of a completely different sort. And if it becomes established in your mind, if, if, all, if that arises and all these other different parts of your mind agree and say, yeah, that's cool, we'll do that from now on. 
it'll start to carry over into all kinds of other things in your life. And you'll become this kind of person who has a, I just, I, you know, I want to be better, but I can't. I just keep doing the same things over and over again. And I feel bad afterwards, but I can't change no matter how I try. Well, it's your karma. You made yourself into a person who does that. My exact behavior, I have heard ridiculed as the the the, the 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 confession that you 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 always go out on Saturday night and then you go to confession so you can you know start oh, yeah, over that's a, that's and you can do anything you want and as long as you confess it you're good yeah. and that that I have heard exactly that behavior it's, ridiculed. So how does that work into becoming a karma or a lifestyle? Well, that's, well, that's exactly that. That's a really I, I hadn't thought of that one we were talking about a moment ago, but that's a good example of it. You know, there are a lot of Catholics who do that, but they all know better, <laughs> right? I know that they, they, they know when you it. go when you go to confession and the priest gives you absolution. Absolution doesn't count unless you really, really mean not to do the thing again in the future. So you can you really, can't. really mean it like a so that. Even the second time you do it, there's some part of you that says, yeah, well, you I'm know, working the system now. I'm yeah. working that's right, that's right. And so in the in terms of Catholic theology, you are now committing a new and different kind of sin in addition to the one that you are already doing. And that's basically what I'm saying here. You're creating a new and different kind of karma, which you're going to reap the consequences of. You are shaping the person that you're going to be. Just just as the Catholic who says, you know, I can do anything I want on Friday night, because Saturday morning I go to confession, Sunday I go to communion, and Monday you're right back at it. You know, and, and what would they be told by the priest? They'd say, you know... Um, that was a venial sin, but what you're doing now is a moral, mortal sin. And you know, you're, 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 you're creating even more worse bad karma for those. So the priests are on to the work in the system, too, huh? <laughs> you know, there was a, a real change in the jurisprudence this week where somebody was convicted of intending to commit a serious crime. Mm -hmm. He had not committed it. And I think it's the very first time that anybody in America has been found guilty with the intended, intending to commit the crime. Um, but isn't attempted murder a crime? Well, it's serious. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying, is where it was actually the letter of the law was interpreted that the intention is equivalent to the act. Yes. Yeah, but it's, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time that ever, uh, anybody ever has been found guilty of, of intention. Of intention, yes. Yeah. Or that gets really dicey if that were to enter into law is that how do you ever know the intentions of another well, person? Well, what they believed <laughs> was the evidence that he intended to commit. Yes, that. right. But it's much it's much easier to assemble evidence to do with acts than it is intentions. So the tricky part, I think yeah. I understand all this stuff. The tricky part then is when you're evaluating what your intentions are and when you're deluding yourself that your intention is not desire or avarice or whatever. 
right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And basically get into the real minefield of trying to figure out that out. Absolutely. To, to use this, you have to recognize that to begin with, you're going to delude yourself considerably about your intentions. Uh, but as a, as a practice, right. you, you get more and more clear, you see more and more clearly what your intentions are. Um, this actually manifests in the stages of enlightenment. The second stage of enlightenment of the once returner is a person who's totally dedicated to rooting out craving in every form. So that person has become extremely skilled at discerning the true intention behind uh, uh, all of their actions, behind their thoughts, behind their emotions, and things like that, so that they can counteract them. But yeah, we begin with, we, we practice keeping the precepts. And this is a powerful tool, because it forces you to try to discern what your intentions are. But anyway, it's time to go. So your intentions are karma. Intention is karma. And the consequence of the karma, the moral consequence that's reflected back upon you as the originator and the owner of the intention, what you inherit from that is the person you are in the future. So karma is not about what happens to you. Karma is about who it happens to. And good karma makes you a person who will have less suffering and more happiness no matter what happens to you. Bad karma will make you a person who has more suffering and less happiness no matter what happens to you. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> getting better than that. And I hope to see you all next weekend, because uh, we're going to get into all of this kind of stuff uh, more deeply. By the way, in case you didn't see the flyer, we're going to answer all those questions about what did the Buddha really mean about karma? Did, you know, what did he really say about reincarnation, rebirth, all those sorts of things. So please do come if you can.